0: You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 10 30. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I have planned a, a special Mother's Day sermon for us uh, called uh, Jesus, the Law, and the Christian. Um, that was a joke. Um, it, uh, uh, in all seriousness, nothing wrong with a special Mother's Day sermon. Perhaps we'll do one soon. But uh, perhaps the, the greatest challenge I could give to a mom and to a father alike is to ground yourself. In God's word uh, is the biggest blessing uh, that you can give to other people in your life and is the biggest transformative power uh, that uh, you could ever have is to allow God's word uh, to be at the center of your life. And so, um, <clears throat> but as we come to uh, today's uh, message and we talk about uh, continue our conversation about the law, last week we tried to uh, kind of frame our perspective on the law um, by by looking at really God and the law, the law and the law giver, uh, how we can trust the authority of God, which is revealed through the law uh, as God is our creator and as our redeemer, and how uh, as we understand who God is, that changes our perspective on the law rather than um, uh, rather than despising it, denying it, dismissing it, instead we delight in it. We seek to diligently study it and to and to keep it. And uh, we understand that uh, as we approach the uh, the law, we're we're seeing the very character of God revealed, as well as seeing a mirror that exposes our sin, and, uh, and and seeing how it points us to the gospel. and And ultimately, in Christ, we we then understand that we walk in obedience. To God's commands, not out of duty, but out of delight, not in and uh, not in an effort to earn something from God, but in a response to what God has graciously given and shown us uh, in Christ. And so, but the question is raised in all of this: what is what does the law uh, have to do with Jesus, and how does Jesus uh, change our relationship to the law? In fact, I was thinking uh, about this and, and just thinking about one of the. Uh, One of the ways in which this is particularly relevant beyond just Understanding your Bible, right, like we have the uh, the commands of the of the old testament and uh, and we see how the law is so central in the Old Testament, and then we get to Jesus and we understand the the grace and the mercy that comes through christ 's death and resurrection and and sometimes it's easy for us to have kind of this gap in our mind like God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, how do these things relate? what does this mean and one of the charges we get in our culture is uh, that uh, That Christians can be seen as inconsistent and in picking and choosing which laws they apply from the bible and it 's like convenient that uh you know uh, we we like don't uh, keep the command about mixing fabric I think i 've got like some polyester cotton mixture going on in uh, in my shirt today, uh, and there 's like a command in the law about not mixing fabrics and uh, this week i didn 't shave because it just I wanted to be consistent not to sh- you know cut the corner of my of my beard according to the law and uh, i haven 't had any uh, shellfish i 'm um, trying to recall if i 've had pork this week or not, you know, but why do we not keep some of them and then and then all of a sudden uh, you know. this particularly comes out in our culture as we talk about the issues of homosexuality or sexuality more broadly speaking. It's like, why are Christians so stuck on these laws in the Old Testament but these other laws we don't talk about? And besides, not only are they Christians inconsistent, but I mean they don't even keep the commands that they tell other people to keep, so they're hypocrites. I don't know if you ever felt that? Ever heard that argument? Ever read that argument? um, Felt the kind of arrows pointed at you? And and this is is a real argument that is made against many Christians today. We're inconsistent and we're hypocritical in which laws we apply. And so how do we understand which laws apply and which don't? Well, that question takes us directly to Jesus. Because we have to understand how Jesus relates to the law, and then how we as Christians relate to the law in light of what Jesus has accomplished, and so that takes us to Matthew five seventeen through twenty. I read from Luke twenty four because I I want us to see that this theme isn't just a singular occurrence in the New Testament uh, and and throughout the Gospels, but is in fact something that's repeated uh, continually uh, in the Gospels uh, related to how Jesus fulfills. The law, Matthew five seventeen through twenty, is perhaps one of the most concise statements of this. That falls within the uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's longest recorded sermon that we have in the Scriptures, and um, a uh, unfolding of what it means to both enter into the kingdom of God as well as live in the kingdom of God as kingdom citizens in light of Jesus and. Uh, and so, <clears throat> here in the midst of it, after he lays out what's called the beatitudes—these uh, characteristics that define those who are already in the kingdom of God, those who uh, those who have responded to and have uh, expressed dependence and allegiance to Jesus—their life is marked by these realities. And and then he calls us as his people uh, to be salt. Uh, and to be light. Uh, and then he's going to, to kind of address the elephant in the room because Jesus is giving all this authoritative teaching. And the last time somebody uh, stood up on a mountain and gave authoritative teaching like this, it was Moses. So uh, what's, what's Jesus saying about the law that Moses gave is kind of the question that's in everybody's mind. Uh, and so Jesus gets straight to the point, And he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter, a a dot or an iota, it says in some translations, will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So four things I want us to see here uh, in this passage. The first is that Jesus does not abolish the law. Jesus does not abolish the law. You see, verse 17, it it gets straight to the point of of Jesus' view and his relationship to uh, the Old Testament, the, the law, and remember how we talked about the law can mean uh, a number of things. It could be a reference to the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes we reference it of the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's the whole Mosaic Covenant, uh, the Torah as a whole. Uh, here Jesus is, is speaking uh, not just of, say, the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the law and the prophets, which is shorthand for saying the whole Old Testament. Uh, the, the law, which was given by Moses, which encompasses um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but also the the prophets, which encompasses the history uh, of Israel, their kings and how the prophets spoke to those kings about calling them to remember the covenant and obey God's commands and how when they didn't, God sent them prophets that told them of his judgment and exile that was going to come. But even then, those prophets gave promises of future hope and redemption, how God was going to rescue his people in the future. That, that's pretty much the whole Bible. Sometimes uh, in the New Testament, it will it will use this phrase, or use the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, uh, which are kind of, in the Hebrew, three parts of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is kind of a shorthand way of saying the whole Bible. Um, and, and so Jesus is talking more broadly than just the law, but uh, he's saying the whole Old Testament is not abolished, it's not destroyed. His relationship to it is not one of setting it aside in its entirety. it means that uh, elsewhere in the in the in the gospel of Matthew when Jesus uses this word abolish it's it's often translated destroy it's the idea of that when Jesus says to the Uh, scribes and the pharisees tear down destroy this temple it's the same word abolish this temple and in three days i'm going to rise it up again he's speaking metaphorically about his own death and his resurrection uh, but we kind of get the picture in our mind jesus isn't uh, doing away with or dismissing uh, the significance of the law he doesn't give us permission to dismiss or diminish anything in the Bible. What Jesus says here of the Old Testament, uh, we can take by extension to be true of the whole uh, New Testament as it relates to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and and give account to us not only of his teaching, but of his teaching for the church. And so Jesus is saying we can't dismiss anything in the Bible. We can't diminish anything in in the Bible, including the commands of the law. So I have not come to abolish it. And so this raises the question uh, for us what should our attitude be towards the law? We, we spoke last week about how Psalm 119 kind of gives us this positive picture of our attitude towards the law, uh, this idea of delighting and, uh, and, and diligence and devotion to, to God's commands. <clears throat> well, here Jesus is saying, if he has not come to abolish the law, then we cannot be indifferent towards what it commands. And so this works out in in one of two ways. You can either do this explicitly or functionally. We can explicitly dismiss the Bible by saying, no, I don't want to keep that. Or we can functionally live like God's commands don't matter for us. And this happens when we don't know God's word, when we don't uh, prioritize God's word speaking into our lives when we don't allow the preaching of God's word to be central in our gathering together as a church. We don't take God's word more from just being information that we know to being something that transforms us at the deepest level of who we are as a person. We, many people uh, that I think that attend church regularly would, would not be, um, would not be characterized easily by being the ones that like to explicitly just outright reject and dismiss what the Bible has to say. Uh, you know, we, we know what company we're in. It's like it's not good to be like, no, nah, I don't want to keep that. But, but at the same time, the truth is uh, there are some things that the Bible says that steps on our toes. And we're like, I really like God, but I don't like that. So I'm not going to I've made the decision that I don't keep that. But for the most part, I like Jesus and I'm going to try to live by what he says. I've I've had uh, people I know and love that are like, man, I, I love kind of the ethics of Jesus, um, but I don't believe all the other stuff about him. I, I kind of like the picture of what it means to live a good and upright life, but I'm not really down on the whole he died and rose on from the dead and it's coming back again and you know trusting in him and, uh, and and really what that's saying is I I like the the ideal version of what it means to be a good person, but I'm gonna kind of. It's ironic because it's kind of the inconsistent principle, right? I'm going to pick and choose the things that I like about what he says to follow rather than submitting my whole life to him. Um, and, and, and and that honestly forgets the, the pattern that God has given us, right? It's not keep my commands and then you get something from me. It's receive the redemption that I've done for you and then do for me, then uh, walk in obedience to me. And so uh, we can either explicitly uh, dismiss God's commands or functionally dismiss God's commands. And while one is more shocking to us, maybe the, it's more shocking when people are like, not rejecting what God says there and living my life my own way. That may be shocking to us, but here's the truth either explicit or functional dismissal of God's word is equally offensive to God. Explicit or functional, dismissive, uh, dismissing God's word is equally offensive to God. And that's why if Jesus doesn't abolish the law, then we can't be indifferent towards what it commands. Now I know this Mother's Day sermon isn't starting off so uh, warm and fuzzy, but, <clears throat> but there's good news here. Because that's not the whole verse, right? Mm-hmm. I've not come to abolish the law, Jesus says, but I have come... To fulfill the law. That's the second thing we see. Jesus fulfills the law. Here he's describing his primary relationship to the Old Testament with this one word, fulfillment. When Jesus thinks about the law, the prophets, the, the, the Psalms, the entirety of the Old Testament, he sees his relationship to it in light of the word fulfillment. He says this in a number of places. Uh, just jot these references down. You can go back to them later. John 5, 39-40. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I read earlier from Luke 24, 44 through 47 that said, everything that was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and explained how everything in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were fulfilled in him, in his death, in his resurrection, and in the preaching of the gospel. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, he says to uh, those two disciples who didn't fully perceive that it was Jesus they were talking to, he says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. From these, these passages and from what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 17, we see two things uh, about the Bible that are important for us. Number one, we can't dismiss anything in the Bible. And number two, we only understand the Bible if we see everything in it in light of Jesus. So we can't, can't dismiss anything in the Bible and say, not important. But then to the flip side, to understand what the Bible says, we have to understand everything in light of Jesus because he changes our relationship to the law by the nature of his fulfillment of it. We see his fulfillment in his life, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection, in his second coming. It basically says that Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament is one of both discontinuity and continuity. We see that he has fulfilled it. There's this picture that comes from that of, of in a way, discontinuity. Because there's a change that's taken place in light of the coming of Jesus. But then there's also continuity because uh, the law doesn't uh, go away. doesn't dismiss any of those things. But now we understand it differently in light of him, in light of what he has accomplished. And so you're saying to yourself, Michael, will you tell me then how to understand the Old Testament and the Bible in light of Jesus? I'm glad you asked that question because that's what Chris is going to do soon. Um, I'm just kidding. That's what we're about to do right now. To understand how the whole Bible uh, points to Jesus and is to be understood in light of Jesus. There's two things we can say. That Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament promises and he fulfills what it requires. Now, typically uh, how... Um, throughout church history, especially starting with uh, the likes of Thomas Aquinas and then John Calvin and other reformers, the Old Testament law has been broken down into three parts. Now, I'm about to tell you these three parts, and then I'm about to tell you that it's not exactly accurate to say this. Um, So I'm telling you that I'm telling you something inaccurate before I tell you it, right? Um, But there is something helpful about it, um, that the law can be broken down as we see it, into three parts moral civil and ceremonial the sil- the moral laws are those that deal with timeless truths about god's intention for human ethical behavior things like love your neighbor as yourself uh, this is jesus says this but jesus got it from the law uh, in leviticus 19 it says this uh, but then there are civil laws which are those that deal with israel's legal system including the giving of land the economics um, uh, as well as even criminal justice. We see in Deuteronomy 15, 1, uh, at the end of every seven years, we must cancel all debts. Now there's a command that I'm wondering, should that still be in place, right? Like, uh, you know, or what, what are we doing? Why aren't we applying this one, you know, as opposed to the other ones? And then we have the ceremonial laws, which deal with sacrifices and festivals and priestly activities. Uh, Deuteronomy sixteen thirteen talks about how Israel is to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles uh, for seven days after you've gathered uh, the produce from the threshing floor and the wine press. And uh, there are other festivals and other sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins that are to be kept. There are these ceremonial laws that dealt with the the clean, the cleanness and the purity of God's people. And so but here's the thing. When you look at the Old Testament and you look at uh, both our understanding of how the Jews uh, during this time as well as the intertestamental period uh, and later, uh, as they understood the law, nobody was breaking it down like this. So this isn't a, this isn't a reflection of what the Jews uh, of the Bible thought or if even, uh, even later uh, Jews as they understood the Old Testament. This isn't how they were breaking down the law. It isn't even how Jesus explained how he was breaking down the law. And, and one of the reasons that it doesn't ultimately work is that in the civil and the ceremonial laws, God is reflecting his moral character, right? Like, they're not like, oh, okay, like, let's figure out government for Israel. Okay, has, this has nothing to do with my morality, you know, but you should do this, right? Or, uh, you know, the sacrifices, like, the very heart of the sacrifices is that God is holy, So you must make sacrifices. So his moral uh, character is revealed in all of them. Uh, And yet, I think it's helpful for us to see how it fits together. And this helps us particularly to understand of whether or not we are truly guilty of being inconsistent in in applying and being selective in our understanding of the law. So, for example... Uh, when we think about the, the, the law, the Ten Commandments are, are perhaps what most people think when they think of the moral law of God, that they reflects the, the very character uh, of God. Uh, and the rest of the law, in many ways, is an expansion, is a working out uh, of, of those ten words, those ten commands. Um, and In the Mosaic law, God gives Israel laws regarding the temple and sacrifice, when we are to uh, make sacrifice and, and how that's to, to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And that speaks to those uh, ceremonial laws. And then uh, we also have other laws as related to what they were to eat and, and how they were to, to handle sickness that all had to do with their purity and their holiness. And then the the civil laws, as I mentioned, they, they speak to the fact that Israel is a nation state with really a theocracy, with God uh, ruling over it through a king, that they are to have these, uh, these, these kind of civil laws that, uh, that shape uh, their life as a people. And it's in these civil laws that we honestly have some of the harshest laws uh, that we see in the Old Testament, like death penalty for failing to keep the Sabbath or acts of sexual immorality or even rebelling against your parents. And beyond the Mosaic law... Uh, When I say Jesus not only fulfills its promises, but what it requires, we see the prophets making prophecies, predictive prophecies about the Messiah that's to come in the future. And and there are these future fulfillments that are being waited for in uh, in the coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus says he fulfills the law, we have here a framework to help us have some kind of understanding of what all that means. Think of it this way. Jesus is the direct fulfillment of the Old Testament predictive prophecies. I I can't unpack all of them, but if you just look at Matthew 1 through 4, just in those four verses, Jesus uh, is said to fulfill the long-awaited Messiah, being born of a virgin according to Isaiah, being born in the town of Bethlehem according to Micah 5, being from the line of David, just like 2 Samuel 7 says, and bringing salvation to all people through the forgiveness of their sins, just like was promised according to the servant in the book of Isaiah. I mean, this is just some of them, let alone the other ones that speak uh, to his ministry and to the future destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that he speaks about in Matthew 23 through 24. All of these things show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. That's a powerful apologetic in many ways as people wrestle with what to do with Jesus and whether or not he was just a good moral teacher. And you have to say, either uh, he's he stacked up a knowledge of these things, and he worked out and maneuvered some things in his life to fulfill them, but then it all kind of comes undone when you realize the fact that you cannot control where you are born and to whom you are born. right? So God has worked out these things in showing us that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, but he's also fulfills what the law requires. In his life, he perfectly obeyed the law. He was without sin. He fulfilled it in his teaching. He showed us the proper understanding of the law in Matthew 5, 21 through 47. Uh, Jesus kind of goes through. He's like, okay, um, how many of you have ever committed murder? It's good. I'm glad to see no hands. I haven't either. I just for a rhetorical effect, right? Um, <clears throat> he says, well, let's talk about your anger. How many of you have committed adultery? Now we're good, Jesus. Let's talk about let talk about lust. Jesus presses in to show us the full intent of the law. It's not merely external observance alone, but there's the internal component that he shows us. He, he shows us in his teaching in Mark 7, 19, how uh, through through him all food is declared clean because it's not what goes into your body, but what comes out that reveals the sinfulness of our, of our hearts. He fulfills it in his ministry when he touched lepers and he raised the dead uh, back to life. And, and in all of those, things he wasn't made unclean in the law if you touch dead stuff dead people if you you touched unclean people you became unclean you became a cast out or an outcast but jesus did those things that did not become unclean but he made the unclean clean he made the dead live he shows us that, that he's the one who, who fulfills what the law requires and restores even what, um, <clears throat> uh, what's, taken from in, what's taken in the law. He fulfills it in his death because he opens a new way for us to come to God, not through going to the temple and offering a sacrifice, but receiving through him our high priest, who is not only the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, but is the sacrifice taken into the Holy of Holies and is provided for the forgiveness of our sins. And through his death, he has established a new covenant. And in that new covenant, we'll talk about in a minute, he has given us his spirit who empowers us to obey God's commands. And then through his resurrection, he's established a new people of God, not a nation state bound to the land of Israel, but a universal people of Jew and Gentile spreading out over all nations. And he is the savior of all nations. And so all of this shows us uh, this picture of how uh, we are now not under bound by, say, uh, the civil laws. Instead, we see that sin continues to be sin, but the penalties change. And now, rather than the, uh, the civil law enacting a death penalty for our disobedience to God's commands, we see that sin is dealt with by exhortation to repent and turn from sin. Or in the cases of unrepentant sin, in which people persist in unrepentant sin, there's an act of church discipline that takes place. We, we see how the ceremonial laws cannot be practiced today, lest we spite our Savior who died as a once and for all sacrifice for us. If we set up a temple and I set up an altar in here, first of all, Cinemark would have all kinds of problems with us. But if I told you to bring your turtle dove and your pigeon and your your goat and your ram and we've made a sacrifice, we would blaspheme the name of Jesus because he died for our sins. There is no need for another sacrifice. And in his life and in his teaching, he demonstrates in perfect uh, example how God's moral character He displays, you want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. He shows it in its fullness. And so while this isn't isn't built into the Old Testament, uh, it's a heuristic device, if you will, that can help us understand how Jesus affirms this in its entirety, both in, in, in its expression in the civil and ceremonial aspects, but transforms who we are as a people. We're no longer a nation state, but we're now a universal people with Jesus as our Savior. There is no need for ceremonial laws because of the sacrifice of Christ. And um, there's a brief quote by Tim Keller that I think helps say this well. He says, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. It changes how we worship our understanding of what it means to come to God and and the nature of sacrifice and all of these things. But it does not change how we live. God's moral character has not changed. The Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the new. Jesus was there in the beginning at creation just as he was there in the new beginning at the cross. So our worship isn't defined by ceremonial laws, what we eat, don't eat, nor are we under the civil laws of the nation of Israel. But all of these things have been fulfilled in Christ and the moral law fulfilled in him. And so that now we actually look to God and his commands and seek to keep his commands out of a response of, uh, of, uh, of, of worship and, and obedience to him. So the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, our relationships, our commitment to our family, the teachings of sexuality and uh, the ethic that's described there. All of these things are still in force today and because these things are also taught in the New Testament and the life and teaching of Jesus as well as the Apostles. The New Testament, Keller says, continues to forbid killing or committing adultery. All the sexual ethic of the Old Testament's restated in the New Testament. So if the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, it's still enforced today. And it raises the question then of, okay, well, if it's restated in the New Testament, it's still in state today, but what about all of the civil and ceremonial? What about all the stuff about the land and not moving markers and how you handle uh, the the treatment of, of debt and all these different issues, that, and even the, the issues related to, to the poor? Like, should we keep it in its, in its entirety? Uh, how does it change in relation uh, to the new? <clears throat> There's... Here in a moment, I'm going to kind of give us four questions that I think that are helpful to ask, but just lest you think I'm, I'm crazy and I'm like, you know, saying um, something that doesn't compute with what the rest of the Bible says, consider these passages, Matthew 22 through 34, uh, 34 through 40. <clears throat> we think about how the, the, the law is, is often restated in the New Testament, reaffirmed in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus basically sums up the two tables of the, of the Ten Commandments. There's a vertical dynamic. The first four commandments all have to do with our relationship to God. There's a horizontal dynamic that relates to our relationships primarily with one another. Um, <clears throat> listen to how Jesus describes the law in Matthew 22. The Pharisees asked him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? <clears throat> Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind says, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. That sums it up. Love God and love your neighbor. So therefore, read the entirety of the Old Testament in light of Jesus to fully work out what it means to love God and love neighbor. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to dig into all 10 commandments to understand that question. How how does this command... Teach us to love God and love our neighbor in light of Jesus. And then Paul in Romans 13, verses 8 through 13, he both affirms the law and points to how we understand the law in light of Jesus. He says this in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Here you understand how love cannot be void of truth. We cannot say we love and then have no moral backing to that love. If love is is just simple, a sentimentality that that just uh, fully affirms and approves whatever, and is not grounded in the very Ten Commandments that, God, that Jesus just quoted or Paul just quotes. And we're missing what love is. He says that, that to love like this in obedience to God's command is keeping what the entirety of the law says. So it's holiness that's expressed in love. He says salvation is nearer now than what we first believe. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus isn't like a squishy in the middle kind of guy. Put off the works of darkness. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. The first ones seem obvious, but then those latter ones kind of poke at us a little bit, right? Quarreling, jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, our obedience to the law can only come through putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus does the very thing that we just talked about, that he showed us in Matthew 5, 17. He does not dismiss the law, but he shows us that all of the law must be understood in light of him. And when we get this... We have a powerful witness in our world that kind of goes backwards to what Jesus says about being salt and light. When you understand the the fact that God does not dismiss his commands and that they're understood in light of Jesus, we have both a a conviction on what is true as well as a, a compassion and a love that does not make sense to people. A conviction on what is true that also does not make sense to people. So welcome to being a person who does not make sense to other people. And yet it makes perfect sense if you know Jesus. And I really believe this. I I, I step back for a moment and I say this to, to our church family in particular. If you're a follower of Christ. There's all kinds of statements about, you know, this or that's changing. We, we've seen and we are seeing a cultural response in many ways to social issues. that and, and there's all kinds of dynamics of this. And there's no one, I'm not trying to say there's one direct answer to this. We've got racial issues in our country. We've got uh, Roe uh, versus Wade, uh, Lord willing, I pray, being overturned and and then going to the states and seeing the need to care for, for vulnerable women, to care for children, to to support uh, Families to enable and call fathers to, to take responsibility and to, to come alongside them. Uh, that, that whole thing, we, we need to see the end of, uh, of the taking of innocent uh, unborn lives, and yet we're reminded of the holistic call to care for people from womb to tomb, if you will. Uh, we, see, we see other issues as it relates, as I've kind of insinuated and pointed to here, as it relates to sexuality and the, uh, and, and the, the perspective against Christians who are holding to uh, the commands of Scripture as being bigoted or narrow-minded or exclusionary to other people and, and all of these things. And you're like, Michael, you're stepping into all of it right now. And, and I am because here's the point that I want to make. Our goal as followers of Christ is not to conform what God says so that others will be more comfortable with it. But it's to allow God's word to, to transform us. Amen. So that we'll be okay with being uncomfortable as we continue to love God and love others. I, I said earlier, I think a few, a few months back as we were working through Genesis, I think it will be hard for Christians to stand on the truth in our culture today as it relates to many issues. But it will be also hard for us to be faithful to love even people who position themselves as our enemy and oppose what we believe because they believe we oppose them. I think that call to both love God and love others, to be grounded in his commands and obedience to commands, not dismissing anything, and yet understanding them all in light of Jesus radically transforms and changes our position and our understanding in this culture. And it's vital for us to get this, to be prepared to follow Christ. And listen, in the Beatitudes, Jesus paints a picture of what the good life looks like. And you know, when he talks about the good life, this life of mourning our sin, of of being dependent on God, of being humble, of longing for righteousness, of being merciful, of being pure, of being a peacemaker. Do You know, if you do all that, if you live the Christian life just right, you know what Jesus says? He says that people will love you and you will make friends and they'll all be excited to have you over for dinner. He doesn't say that, does he? Look at verse 11, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now listen. I'm not a Christian with a persecution complex We're we're taking our kids took up money to give Bibles to people who are in countries who literally will lose their life for following Jesus. And yet I'm also not a Christian who has my eyes closed to the to the opposition and the obstacles that those who profess faith who profess faith in Christ experience. And in all of this, Jesus says, love me and love others. And if you're going to do that, it's got to be grounded in in my word. You can't dismiss anything in it, and you have to understand everything in it in light of me. That's not any pat answer. That's not any any, uh, kind of surface level uh, call. That is a a call to deep discipleship, faithful obedience over the long haul, in community with God's people, centered around God's word, empowered by God's spirit, uh, exalting Christ in our worship, that's the kind of thing that we need to be as God's people. That wasn't even in my notes. Practically, back to my notes. What this means as we look to the law, and this is going to kind of be worked out a little bit more uh, as we work through the Ten Commandments over the next ten weeks. Uh, there's these four questions that uh, an author, uh, Tim Chester, um, I got these from, I think, that are really helpful because they show us how to look at the entirety of of the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the laws. Ask these four questions. How does the law express love for God and love for neighbor? And then how might that same principle be expressed today? So as I was talking about some of the laws as relates to the land or some of the laws that relate to um, things that maybe don't have the uh, exact carryover, we have to ask, how does this express love for God, love for neighbor? And then what might that look like today? How does the law expose my sinfulness and my need? That's the mirror, right? The law shows us our need for God and our need for dependence on God. And then that points us to Jesus. How did Jesus perfectly keep this law or principle that it embodies? And then does this law picture his work of salvation in some way? So we'll continue to come back and unpack these, but I kind of lay them out there uh, in this way because I think it's helpful when we say Jesus fulfills the law, this helps us understand what that means and that there's not one way uh, that that uh, works out every time, but that uh, we we ask these questions to help us have a fully orbed understanding of how Jesus fulfills the law. The third thing I want us to see, verse 18, is that Jesus affirms the abiding authority of the law. He kind of gives himself an amen when he says truly. That's kind of like a amen. Listen up to what I'm about to say. Um, he says uh, the, the law is good and trustworthy and authoritative. God's word is true and authoritative down to the smallest detail. He, he says literally not a an iota or a dot in the in the writing of Hebrew, just the, the small little markings of, of a little dot or a little um, uh, a little mark uh, would would change meaning or significance to the word. <clears throat> He's saying not down to the little uh, the littlest detail, jot or tittle. Will this law pass away? Instead, it's all held together. D.A. Carson says, Jesus is therefore upholding the reliability and truthfulness of the written word. He is not merely saying the Old Testament contains some truth, still less that it becomes true when men encounter it meaningfully. He's not saying that it's, it's up to our perception of it, or our experience of it. He's saying that the whole scripture is true and cannot be broken. And that's why we take it as a whole and understand, it's, and it's, understand it in its entirety in light of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't allow us to take some parts that we like and dismiss other parts. It all stands together, and that's why we have to understand how it's fulfilled in him. That's why Christians aren't inconsistent in wearing mixed fabric and not cutting the corner of their beard and not eating crawfish and partaking of bacon and pork. And um, it's, it's because these things have a fulfillment, a particular fulfillment in light of, of how the Mosaic Covenant has been surpassed by the New Covenant and, and how Jesus has fulfilled those things. And then it's, it's also why Christians aren't consistent to look at the commands that reflect God's moral character and say we must walk in obedience to God's commands, said, stated in the Old Testament, restated in the New. So here we have the abiding authority of the law, that it's true and reliable and that it's authoritative. And that, that leads us to this final point, that if, if the law abides, then it demands obedience, Matthew five nineteen 19-20. See, verse 19 explains practically what the abiding authority of God's law means, namely obedience. And it states it in two ways. Negatively, it says that we shouldn't disregard God's commands or tell others to do do the same. We shouldn't be like, this isn't important. You don't need to to do that. Positively, though, it says that we should keep God's commands and teach others to do the same. And that comes with a blessing, greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So verse 17 shows us our Jesus' relationship to the Bible. Verses 19 through 20 shows us now our relationship to the Bible in light of Jesus. He's, he's saying that the law's abiding authority and demand for obedience continues, but now he's going to show us that it must be seen in light of the new covenant. And he does this by pressing in to, to the Pharisees because he says... After he says that, um, that the law is true and trustworthy, not the smallest detail is going to pass away. It stands. Uh, we should obey it, not dismiss it. Uh, verse twenty: For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a staggering statement. Like this is like playing the warriors at home, you know, like this is the Pharisees are at their best when it comes to righteousness. Like, this is what they do. Righteousness are us is what the Pharisees are, right? They, they, they fancy themselves on being righteous. And Jesus says you've got to be more righteous than the super holy people. You can understand the weight of that. But what Jesus is saying is he's not saying that you're to beat them at their own game. He's not calling for more and more obedience. He's, he's actually if you will, calling for a deeper obedience. It's not just more external conformity to commands, but uh, it's, it's about embracing wholeheartedly and full allegiance to Jesus, obedience to him. You know, the, the last words of Buddha were strive without ceasing. Keep on working. There's a a sense in which both uh, in in religion outside of Christ as well as even just in our own efforts in this life is just kind of this uh, continual ceasing, this continual or continual striving without ceasing, always something to do, always more to be done. But as we've been reminded at Easter, Jesus's last words were, It is finished. You see, Christianity is utterly different. It's, it's not a, a religion of just more and more righteousness to external commands. But instead, it's, it's an obedience that's in response to what Christ has done, to what Christ has completed. If you think about the Beatitudes, it says you don't get into the kingdom by striving. You get into the kingdom by receiving, by receiving the finished work of Christ, You know, you have a grasp on God's grace or better yet, God's grace has a grasp on you when your life is marked by a conviction of sin and when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and and when you desire for meekness and peacemaking and mercy to to characterize your relationships with others. That's evidence of grace, not a, a means of achieving grace. So Jesus is actually calling for this deeper righteousness that's grounded in dependence on him. Not merely external demands, but internal dependence that produces a transformed heart that that works itself out in obedience. And all of this really brings us to this reality. If this is the case, how can it be true that there is this transition from just external demands to internal uh, dependence that produces obedience? And this brings us to the issue of the new covenant. We can't unpack this in in its fullness, Uh, but if you just mark down Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, this has kind of been a theme that we've come back to a few times, so I'm not going to read all these. But then mark down Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 26. Jesus, or the prophet Ezekiel said this in, in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36. He says, I will take from you the nations and gather from all countries and bring you into your own land. God speaking to Israel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And Jeremiah tells us that this spirit that changes our hearts is so that the law would be written on our hearts so that we would obey God's commands. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, we often read this when we take the Lord's Supper, which next week we'll take the Lord's Supper together, that Jesus through his death has accomplished the the bringing about of the new covenant, that his blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 1, Paul says that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness. Colossians 1.13. And Romans 8 says, uh, says to us that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Listen to this. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on flesh like us. And came and in his body on the cross, he condemned sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh, but who walk by the spirit. What we see here is this picture of transfer from the Mosaic covenant to the new covenant. And what, what all of this means is we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. We have forgiveness of sins through Jesus And we're empowered by God's spirit to obey his commands. John Bunyan, a Puritan author, he put it this way. Here's the difference between the law and the gospel. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The gospel enables and produces in us the ability to keep God's commands. And when we think about the law, uh, the law's verdict over us and Jesus' verdict over the law, think of these two words. The law's verdict over us ultimately is failure. It exposes our sin. It exposes our inability to obey God. I already know that none of you are murderers, but I saw the look on your face when I asked you about anger. I know the condition of my own heart. I, I, I know that even if, even if the external was all good, the 10th commandment gets you in the end. What about covetousness? What about wanting other people's stuff? What about thinking that somebody else has it better than you and that God doesn't know what he's doing? All of us have fallen short. All of us have the verdict of failure over us if we are, if we are going to count on our own ability to keep God's commands. But then comes Jesus and then comes the good news of the gospel because Jesus' verdict over the law is fulfilled. And, And I end with this because this is the good news that we celebrate as believers in Christ. The law was fulfilled by Jesus for you. It's not just, I don't want you just to look at Jesus and be like, man, he kept the law perfectly. No, he did it for you, for me. The good news of the gospel is that in his that his perfect obedience was for you, that his sacrificial death was for you, that his victorious resurrection was for you. And then the hope of the new covenant is that his spirit that empowers obedience is in you. This is the good news of the gospel, his perfect obedience in our place, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection for the dead, for us, his spirit in us. And William Cooper said to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and a duty into a choice. Did you catch that? To have the law fulfilled for us and to hear the forgiveness of God through faith in Christ. Changes our relationship to God from a slave to a child. And it changes our relationship to the law from a duty to a choice. This is how Jesus helps us to understand the law and his fulfillment of the law, and then helps us to understand how we relate to the law. And friends, the accusation that we can be inconsistent and hypocritical can be true because we're sinners in need of God's grace. But it's not because we're picking and choosing what we want to apply or not apply. It's because we're continually reminded of our need for God's grace to help us to walk in obedience to his commands. And so the invitation to every believer every day is to remember what Christ has done for you and what Christ has put in you so that we can can live as his children in the freedom of following him and obedience to him. And the invitation to everyone who doesn't know Christ, whether here today or as you go about your day and your relationships is to remember that God not only has given us his law, but he's given us a son which enables us to keep his commands. So we don't have to keep striving We don't have to keep working. We receive, then we're freed, and then we live in the freedom and the joy of following Christ, which is marked by obedience to His commands.